Before we get started, I'd like to thank Tim Wall, Todd Bradle, David Chomiak, Scott Flood, and Willie Conqueso, who all used the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show's notes to buy me some virtual coffee and keep the lights on here. Thanks, everybody. You are all the best. Also, for those of you who don't usually stay until the end, a special thanks to John K. Schneider, the creative wizard behind the art used for the Chicago History Podcast social media pages. If you need creative work done, you will find no one better. Find him at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. And now... During all the teeth gnashing regarding the renaming of Lakeshore Drive to Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable Drive last year, I did two episodes pointing out a few of the different aspects of Chicago that have been changed over the years. Well, I'm doing it again today. Here's Renaming Streets, Places, and Other Things in Chicago, Part 3. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Now, I'm pretty sure there aren't nearly as many things in this episode likely to raise the blood pressure of those still angry that our city's tallest building isn't called the Sears Tower any longer, or that the White Sox don't still play at Comiskey Park. Well, maybe. I was in the loop last weekend and got a fresh picture of the cornerstone of the building on the northeast corner at Wells and Quincy, just below the Quincy Brown Line stop. That reads South 5th Avenue. Now, I actually mentioned this name change in the first renaming episode, but didn't really do it justice due to time. So here goes. For those of you not familiar with it, Wells Street runs north-south at 200 West and is named after William Wells, who had a fascinating upbringing, eventually becoming a United States Army captain and then dying at the Battle of Fort Dearborn. In October of 1870, the Chicago Evening Mail newspaper contained a little blurb titled Change of Name. Below that reads... The name of Wells Street was changed to that of Fifth Avenue and that of Griswold Street to that of Pacific Avenue by an almost unanimous vote. As the area around Wells Street south of the river to Taylor Street had become a little rough and tumble, the city felt leaving the name Wells Street would somehow tarnish the memory of the Fort Dearborn Army captain. According to a Chicago Eagle newspaper article, they settled on Fifth Avenue as at the time there was a push for streets in Chicago to be renamed after New York thoroughfares. State Street narrowly escaped being called Broadway, although we do have a Broadway currently, and Dearborn nearly became the Bowery. A city council majority of two votes squashed those efforts. I even found a Marshall Field and Company wholesale dry goods ad in the August 19, 1899 Chicago Eagle newspaper. That includes the address Adams, Franklin, 5th Avenue, and Quincy Street. After nearly 50 years, a recommendation by the City Council Committee on Streets and Alleys was adopted in November of 1916 to change the name of the street back to Wells. 
The city decided the change would occur roughly 13 months later, allowing businesses on Fifth Avenue sufficient time to change their signs and letterhead to the new-slash-old name. On January 1st, 1918, the street was returned to its former name, Wells Street. And in case you think I'm going to skip over the part where Griswold Street was changed to Pacific Avenue, this one actually threw me for a minute. Looking at a present-day map, Pacific Avenue is roughly 8,000 west and runs north from Belmont to Irving Park Road. What I hadn't considered was that Pacific Avenue's name might have been changed again. And indeed, after a little digging, I found out it was one of a number of streets that was renamed in 1909, to LaSalle Street. Indian-born British artist Anish Kapoor is the man behind the massive sculpture located in Millennium Park that measures 66 feet long and 33 feet high and features a 12-foot-tall arch at its base. Comprised of 168 stainless steel plates that have been seamlessly welded together, It was meant to create the illusion of a single form. Kapoor called it Cloudgate. Chicagoans, of course, took one look at the legume shape of the piece and began calling it the bean. Kapoor was not amused, telling writer Kevin Nance in a 2004 Chicago Sun-Times article he found the nickname, quote, completely stupid, end quote. Kapoor elaborated, I just as happily do without a title, actually, except that it suggests a possibility of interpretation. In this case, the work is clearly reflecting what's around it, picking up the Chicago horizon, the Chicago skyline, bringing it into itself in a way. It is a gate, a gate to Chicago, a poetic idea about the city it reflects. To call it something else damages the potential for a different way of thinking about the piece. Fortunately, Kapoor came around to Cloudgate's nickname. Quote, It's great for it to have a colloquial name, its own lingo, Kapoor told the Sun-Times in 2017. I call it the Bean 2. The main major expressway north from the city of Chicago to suburban Northbrook, Illinois, is the Edens Expressway. The Edens was the first expressway in Chicago, opening on December 20th, 1951. The original name of the expressway was the Edens Parkway, named after William Grant Edens, a banker and early advocate for paved roads. Edens was a sponsor of Illinois' first highway bond issue in the fall of 1918. In November of that year, while World War I was in its final days, the $60 million Good Roads bond issue was up for a vote. William Edens, then president of the Illinois Highway Improvement Association, said of the bond issue, quote, The good people of this state realize that the Good Roads program will assist in stabilizing industry and giving employment to thousands of workmen after the war is won, end quote. He went on to say, yada yada, please vote. And then this nugget, quote, Illinois is the first state to propose a road financing plan under which there is no tax against the home of the working man or the land of the farmer. The entire cost is borne by automobile owners who will save in repairs more than the amount involved. 
Now, I will say the driving on paved roads must have been a ginormous step up from dirt and gravel when it comes to wear and tear on your auto. But boy, howdy, I still feel like my car takes a beating on most Illinois roads. Oh, one more thing about William Grant Edens. It has been written he never owned or drove a car. When the 100-story, 1,128-foot John Hancock Center at 875 North Michigan Avenue was topped off in May of 1968, it was the second tallest building in the world, the first being the Empire State Building in New York and the tallest skyscraper in Chicago. When it was fully completed in 1969, it contained the highest residence in the world. The building, originally financed by the John Hancock Mutual Life Insurance Company, is home to offices, restaurants, roughly 700 condos, and tourist-friendly fun like 360 Chicago, an observatory which gives visitors a 360-degree view of the city, up to four states, and a distance of over 80 miles. This structure also has long hosted something called Hustle Up the Hancock, a 1,623-step stair climb, usually held every February, that benefits the Respiratory Health Association's efforts to prevent lung disease and promote clean air. Oh, and for you movie fans, it was also the primary filming location for the 1988 film Poltergeist 3. But here's the thing. While Chicagoans of a certain age will likely forever refer to this building as the John Hancock Center, it hasn't been the John Hancock Center for years. The Boston-based John Hancock Life Insurance Company was acquired in 2004 by Manulife Financial, a Canadian company, and gradually began vacating offices in the building at 875 North Michigan. In 2013, a group of real estate investors, which included Chicago-based Hearn, bought about 908,000 square feet of offices on floors 13 to 41 and the 717-space parking garage on floors 4 through 12 for $140 million and then spent another $69 million on building upgrades. Nearly a decade after the Sears Tower became the Willis Tower, the insurance company that built one of the most recognizable buildings along Michigan Avenue requested their name and logos throughout the building be removed immediately. While owners of the building estimated naming rights for the former John Hancock Center could be worth $1.5 million or more annually, they didn't seem eager to rush into anything. Stephen Hearn, president and CEO of Hearn Company, was quoted in a Tribune article saying, quote, We have turned away a number of interested parties because we didn't feel the name was appropriate for this iconic property. I want to put an identity on this property that everyone in Chicago can be proud of. Hustle up the Hancock, that stair-climbing event to raise money and awareness. They have since changed their name to Hustle Chicago Stair Climb. And yes, it is still held at the building locals call the John Hancock Center for nearly 50 years. For now, the building at 875 North Michigan is called just that, 875 North Michigan. Another street renaming story, Nelson Algren was an American novelist who was born in Detroit but relocated with his family to Chicago when he was three 
Algren's 1949 novel, The Man with the Golden Arm, considered his greatest work, won the National Book Award in 1950. Director Otto Preminger later adapted the book into a film starring Frank Sinatra, although Algren was not a fan of his Hollywood experiences. From ages 3 to 8, Algren's family lived on the South Side, where he became a lifelong White Sox baseball fan. Even when his family relocated to an apartment on the North Side in Albany Park, he stayed true to the Sox. Algren wrote many stories about Chicago, but they leaned a little gritty with tales of drug addicts, corrupt politicians, and hoodlums. As an adult, he lived two blocks south of Wicker Park at 1958 West Evergreen in a third-floor apartment from 1958 to 1976. When Algren died in 1981, his friend and Chicago newspaper writer Mike Royko wrote a kind eulogy for Algren and suggested it might be nice if City Hall named a street after him, more specifically Evergreen Street, where Algren lived for so many years. Mayor Jane Byrne liked the idea and asked an aide to draft an ordinance changing the name of the four-block segment of the street between Damon and Milwaukee Avenue. The ordinance was submitted to the city council, and Royko even got an Algren Street sign. A city crew eventually went to the area and swapped out the evergreen signs for the Algren Street signs. I'll let Royko step in here. How did the neighborhood react? Were they pleased that someone who had lived there was being honored? Did they welcome the opportunity to tell their children, See, a man who used to live right down the street here was a very famous writer. Not quite. Nope, because Chicago, people felt that they were being inconvenienced. Their relatives wouldn't be able to find the houses anymore. Mail wouldn't get delivered. They'd have to change their driver's licenses. The ward's aldermen began hearing from outraged locals and fearing his re-election chances were dwindling. He went to City Hall to see what could be done. It turned out that the city signs department figured that if Mayor Byrne wanted the street name changed, everyone would be cool with it, but didn't wait for the city council to make it official. The alderman rallied his colleagues to block the name change, and a few days later, a city crew went back and took down the Algren Street signs. According to writer John R. Schmidt in a 2012 WBEZ column, it was not long after the Algren Street fiasco that Chicago began issuing those brown and white signs that you see on poles with honorary street names. This, of course, allows those persons being recognized a nice tip of the cap without giving Chicagoans another reason to get up in arms. While it remains Evergreen Street as of this writing, there is, last I checked, a Chicago tribute sign out front acknowledging Algren's time there. Fun fact, two of Algren's favorite Chicago bars are still in operation, Lottie's Pub on Cortland and Rainbow Club on Damon. One of the many elements I found amusing in all this was that the newspaper column about Royko's attempts to get a street named after his friend Nelson Algren in Chicago was carried in newspapers like the Durham Morning Herald in Durham, North Carolina, the Arizona Daily Star in Tucson, Arizona, the Vancouver Sun in Canada, and the Honolulu Star Bulletin in Hawaii. 
I often think of Royko as so Chicago. I forget he was a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer whose columns were syndicated across North America in more than 600 newspapers. Royko produced more than 7,500 columns in a four-decade career, but I can't help but wonder if people in Tucson, Arizona could relate to some of these stories. renaming thing I thought was pretty cool, although it is merely hypothetical. Let me explain. Our L system has names that usually correspond with the street or large building nearby. Addison, Sox 35th, Merchandise Mart, Cermak, Chinatown, Thorndale, Clark Division, Washington Wells, Montrose, and so on. In early 2022, Janet Volk, the creator and founder of the Women's L Project, began to reimagine the 140-plus CTA stops renamed for women from the Women's L Project website. The Women's L Project honors women of Chicago's past who persevered in a male-dominated world to do amazing and life-changing work in the fields of social work, justice, the arts, writing, politics, and science. Sadly, most of these women were not given credit for their work and have been overlooked in history. The Women's L Project also recognizes contemporary Chicago women who, despite hurdles, are making strong contributions to the city, to society, and to the world. By symbolically renaming L-stops after these women and telling their stories, the Women's L Project hopes to inspire all people to strive for greatness in their lives and positive change in their communities and the world. Again, all hypothetical, but it could be a great way to educate those hurried travelers at spots like the Addison Stop on the Red Line, which could be named for Anne Hartnett, the first player signed to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. On the green line, instead of the Garfield stop, it could be named after Leona Woods Marshall, the lone female member of the team that built the world's first nuclear reactor, discussed in episode 218 of this podcast. Near DePaul University, at the Fullerton Brown Line stop, Mary Alice McWinney, the Antarctic researcher and DePaul University professor, could be recognized. Check out womenslproject.com to see the full map of 141 names. You can even buy posters and notebooks with the map with the women's names. listening to today's episode if you want to get a hold of me feel free to send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com or go to chicagohistorypod.com and click on the microphone in the lower right corner to leave me a voice message depending on the content of the message i may use it in a future episode stay safe history nerds